Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hope you're having a great week and this week I'm super excited to bring to you the conversation that I had with Professor Herman Ponzer. Now Herman is the author of um, a book that's really exploded into the public sphere, Burn, The Misunderstood Science of Metabolism and we do a super deep dive into how our understanding of energy expenditure has shifted and what this means with regards to fat loss, population obesity rates, the importance of physical activity versus diet and a whole host of other metabolism related issues. Herman Ponzer is an Associate Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Duke University and he's the Associate Research Professor of Global Health at the Duke Global Health Institute. He's an internationally recognized researcher in human energetics and evolution. He has over two decades of research in field and laboratory and has conducted path-breaking studies across a range of settings including fieldwork with the Hadza hunter-gatherers of which we talk about in northern Tanzania, fieldwork on chimpanzee ecology in the rainforests of Uganda and metabolic measurements of great apes in zoos and sanctuaries around the globe. In addition to that, he's also been involved in a number of projects that look at how we as humans in this modern day society expend energy and we talk about a paper that was just very recently published in and around how our metabolism changes over time and it isn't what you think so you can find information about Herman over on the Duke University website and I'll absolutely put his contact details in the show notes as well and just before we kick off with the interview just to remind you for those of you who have reached out to ask about supporting the podcast the best way to do that is head to my website and hook into the recipe portal access there where you get for less than a coffee a week you get access to all of my recipes our private facebook group where you get to ask me any questions and we have weekly forums and fortnightly lives and things like that and also the online messaging system where we can help personalize your already awesome nutrition approach so, without further delay, please enjoy my interview with Herman Ponzer. Oh, it, like, it was, like, you are such a talented writer, and uh, you don't often find that with academics. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just the academics that I read. Uh, but, you know, usually I expect to read a book like Burn, which is well actually the title did suggest that potentially there was going to be you know that it was going to be yeah. like quite a you know a let read. me ask you this which which subtitle did you get do you get the misunderstood oh. science of human metabolism or did you get new science blows the lid off of blah 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 oh no no i got the other one the the um new science of the first one that you said say that the misunderstood science of human metabolism or something with the robots yes. the robots on the on the cover do you know what, Herman? I cannot remember because it's a Kindle. Doesn't and matter. Do yeah. Know? See, um, yeah. the the UK version, the UK publisher did what I would have done, what I wanted people to do, which is just treat this like a science book and not like a diet book because it isn't a diet book. And um, the uh, US publisher wanted to make it a 
you know, they wanted to be in the in the diet space. They understood what it was. They weren't trying to make it something that wasn't, but they were very happy to try to put it into that space, which on one level is cool because maybe people who read it who wouldn't have. But on, yes. an, on another level, it's a bit like, well, you feel like you showed up to the wrong party. But, you know. <laughs> that's actually, that's a very good point because, uh, like, nothing about it really spoke to me as if it was a diet book, you mm. know. Like, I loved the title, The Misunderstood Science of, of Metabolism. Having said that, though, with a Kindle, you know what it's like. You buy the book, and then suddenly you just get amnesia. It's like, I yeah. can't even remember what I'm reading. But, of course, I could remember right. with your book because yeah. I was uh, – doing an appropriate for this. So, um, Herman, can we kick off by getting you to tell me, how did you even get into the field of human metabolism? I'd really love to understand yeah. your background a little bit first and then get into, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts. Sure. So I'm an anthropologist and specifically I'm an evolutionary anthropologist, which is to say I'm very interested in how the human body evolved and how mm. that sort of evolutionary history, the way our bodies were shaped, um, affects the way that they work today, especially in these mm. strange environments we've built ourselves, these zoos <laughs> that mm. we live in. Um, and uh, so, you know, if you want to understand evolution and sort of the basic physiology of any organism, there's nothing you want to could start with that would be better than than calories, right? Because and, mm. and the reason is in in evolution, right? Life is a game of turning energy into offspring. That's full stop. That's it, right? So, yeah, it, yeah and. Not only that, but the amount of energy that you burn every day is telling you about all of your body's systems at work, right? Mm. So it's telling you what's going on. It's sort of the, the, the bottom line number for how busy your different systems are. And so, and those, those differ between species we, we now know. Um, uh, if we didn't before, we, we know it now for sure. So there are all kinds of interesting evolutionary questions, basic physiology questions, sort of you know, adaptations to different lifestyles, sorts of questions that you can ask uh, through the lens of metabolism. And that's what I've been doing for the past uh, more than a decade, I guess. Mm. And, you know, your, your book, you know, The Misunderstood Science of Metabolism, I feel like that so encaptures how people might feel about the entire area, you know, like we, mm. we use the term metabolism in, in so many different sort of contexts, yet you're yeah. studying it as a science. You know, can you just explain to us how you view, what is metabolism? Yeah, that's a good place to start. So. Um, our cells do work every day, all day mm. throughout the day. You got 37 trillion of them. Mm. And, you know, there's no system that can do work without burning energy. So, you know, the engine in your car or the air conditioning unit in your house or whatever it is, if, you, if it's doing work, it's burning energy. Um, and so it's the same with your cells. And so they're busy all day, all 37 trillion of your cells. And the work that they're doing, taking nutrients in, making different molecules, pumping out waste, pumping out signaling molecules like hormones, whatever it is, um, that takes energy. And so the energy that the, the sum of all the energy that all your cells burn every day, we call that total energy expenditure, or you can mm. call it your, meta, your metabolism, if you like. Um, mm. And that's, you know, that is metabolism. The energy that you're burning to do that work is your metabolism. So for mm. somebody like me, you know, metabolism is all of that. It's all the physiology yeah. of it all, all at the same, all at once. Um, and I think, you know, you, you raise a really important point, which is that it's misunderstood. It's talked about in sort of kind of casual ways, I think, sometimes misleading ways, because people talk about metabolism like it's just about your diet or it's just about your exercise. Mm. Um, and those things are all related, of course, and they all uh, affect your metabolism, but they're not your metabolism. Mm. Mm. And 
in your book, you sort of describe the, you know, we've got calories in and we've got calories out. And there is, if I'm going to say the supermarket and I pick up any kind of food item that has a nutrition information panel on it, it'll give me the number of calories in the food. And then it'll give me this percentage of how much total energy that that might contribute to my overall energy requirements, which is based on this 2000 calories a day. Like, does everyone actually need 2,000 calories? Do we only need 2,000 calories? How is that sort of contributed yeah. to our misunderstanding? I think it just speaks to how little people understand. Um, and it's not their fault. I want to be really clear about mm. that. We're, we're just not taught about it very well. Um, you know, that 2,000 kilocalorie a day benchmark that everybody knows is mm. that, uh, that that is based on asking people what they ate. And people, in, I think it's, at least it's happened in the US, it might've been in other countries as well, but the government was interested in putting out, you know, dietary guidelines. And so they thought, well, what are, what should the guidelines be? What should they be based on? How many calories do people usually eat? And they didn't have any good measurements of it. And so they did what you thought, what makes, you know, sort of sense, which is they just ask people, thousands of them, what they ate. And, you know, that's fine, except that you're depending on people to be honest <laughs> and, and remember, and, remember. Uh, and you know, it turns out that, um, you know, like, like most systems that are based on, uh, on humans being smart about themselves, it, it didn't work really well because, <laughs> uh, you know, people, I think people reported burning about 2,200 calories a day, uh, mm. kilocalories, I should be careful. And, and, uh, they did, they didn't want to round up and they didn't, they thought 2,200 was a kind of a odd number. So they, they rounded down. To two thousand, right. so they took a bad number because we know when you mm. ask people what they eat, they don't, they don't get it right. Yeah, and then so that's a bad number anyway. And then they rounded down, which is even worse. So the number of calories, mm. kilocalories that you actually eat a day uh, and burn a day, because most of us are pretty weight stable, mm-hmm. is about twenty four hundred kilocalories a day for women, and closer to three thousand kilocalories a day for men. And that's the, that that difference is based just on. Uh, body size and how much sort of lean mass you carry. Lean mass burns more calories than than fat does. Yeah. Okay. And what are the energy sucking sort of parts of our body? Like, where is all that yeah. energy being spent? Like, we've got these thirty seven trillion cells. Right. What's great? Yeah. Uh, so uh, most of your energy all day, uh, even if you're an active person who likes to exercise a lot, most of your energy is burnt is, is spent on sort of the background stuff that you'll never notice. Uh, mm. So your brain, your brain runs a 5k every day, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your brain runs th- burns 300 kilocalories of energy per day. And that's equivalent to a 5k. And that's whether or not you're thinking a lot, you know, if you sort of zone out, doesn't matter. Um, yeah. It's that your brain's doing that all the time. Your liver is e- equally uh, hungry for calories. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, kidneys, surprisingly hungry for calories. Uh, you know, your heart is constantly going, um, digestion takes about 10% mm. of the calories you eat, go to, di- to digest those, those calories, that, that food. So, um, yeah, tons and tons and tons of energy all day. And then, and mm. we haven't even gotten into, that's sort of like when you're at rest, you know, not asleep, but lying on your bed, totally chilled out. Mm. Um, if you are in the real world and you're getting, you know, you're getting stressed out, or you're getting uh, cold and you're keeping yourself warm. You know, there's, there's a million other ways that you can spend energy that you don't even really know you're spending. Um, mm. The energy you spend sort of walking and running and exercising is, a, is a, only a portion of the energy mm. you spend all day. So do you, like, it's so interesting talking about energy expenditure because, you know, as I understand it, because it is an expensive thing to study, it hasn't, mm. this is one of the reasons why, why 
there is a lot of misconception around it because potentially people have just sort of hypothesized in and around how much energy you burn when you go for a run or go to the gym. So do yeah. you read magazines or hear things on the, you know, see things on social and just go, my goodness, that is so incorrect. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, yeah, yeah. Here, here's some red flags for you. Anytime you see something that is a met, you know, it boosts your metabolism, oh, yeah. those are inevitably are bullshit. I mean, I'm sorry. They're <laughs> all, all right. wrong. I mean, unless it's like an, an illicit drug that you shouldn't be taking anyway, you know, I mean, yeah, there yeah, are yeah. some things, but you know, uh, but yeah, I, I saw, you know, um, you know, metabolism boosting water and metabolism boosting, you know, vegetables and you should eat your vegetables anyhow, but they're not going to do anything to your metabolism. Come on. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's all of this stuff is just ridiculous. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I did see, uh, yesterday, in fact, that you've just recently published a paper looking at the change in metabolism across a lifetime is that or energy expenditure right. across a lifetime do you want to sort of briefly describe what happens in different life stages yeah absolutely so this was a big study that came together because um a dozen or more labs internationally all pitched in and all we i was my lab was one of them um and we all pitched in our data and this is there's a technique that you use to measure total calories burned over the course of a day uh, and it's called the doubly labeled water technique. It's this isotope mm-hmm. tracking technique, and it's quite expensive. It's about a thousand dollars person. It's cheaper now, but it, it over the you know as a rough estimate. Uh, and so you know nobody had really big data sets because it's so darn expensive to do. Uh, but all the labs all together did, and so we all put our data together, and mm-hmm. we had six thousand four hundred and twenty-one. I think mm-hmm. if I'm remembering that number correctly, uh, people's measurements from eight days old up to their nineties. And wow. we were able to 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 really pull apart exactly what the contributors are, contributors are to energy expenditure, to total calories burned per day um, mm-hmm. over the life course. Okay, mm-hmm. so first we were able to show, and we knew this going in, but we were able to show really nicely how body size affects expenditure, right? So it goes mm-hmm. up, um, small people burn less energy than big people. We knew that mm-hmm. going in, but we were able to, to yeah, show yeah. that, to, to be very clear and very precise about what that, what that relationship really is. Mm-hmm. And then we were able to say, okay, for your body size, do you have a fast metabolism or a slow metabolism, right? So there is we, actually a fast and a slow metabolism, like if we... Yeah. And some of that's mm-hmm. just noise, just differences between people that we don't have a great handle on it. But, but some of it is, is very much patterned and it's patterned mm-hmm. by what age you are in your life. Mm-hmm. And so we notice, for example, that after you correct for body size, um, infants about one year old have metabolic rates. They're burning, burning energy 50% faster than mm-hmm. an adult would if they were an adult that size. And mm-hmm. then slowly that, that elevated metabolism kind of comes down, down into adult levels by about age 20. Mm-hmm. And then it's just completely steady age 20 to age 60. And so all mm-hmm. of the things that happen in your middle age where you think, feel like your metabolism is slowing down, turns out that's not mm-hmm. really true. Mm-hmm. Uh, those changes are happening for other reasons. It's not metabolism. Yeah, yeah. And then post 60, uh, your metabolism declines. And it's not just because people over 60 tend to lose muscle mass. We, we've known that for a long time. And that'll mm-hmm. contribute to this. But even, con- even considering that, even controlling for that, you're mm-hmm. losing, um, your, your metabolism is going down. Your cells are getting less busy. Is so that, that was really fun. Yeah. And if I think about that, um, with regards to the older age group, we know that enzyme activity diminishes and things like that over time. Yeah. Is that potentially reflected in, in some of your findings? Well, like that's exactly just, right. No, that's exactly yeah, it. It's yeah. sort of how busy are the cells uh, producing enzymes or, or hey, you know, the enzyme cycles that break things down and, and you know, build them back up. Yeah, all that yeah, stuff yeah. is happening yeah. slower. And if it happens more slowly... Then it'll consume energy more slowly, and 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 you know, on the whole, you as a whole unit of this stuff happening, it, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, 
it all come down. So that's the way to think about metabolism, right? Is how busy are my cells and how many yeah. do I have? Yeah, true. And I suppose your brain might be shrinking. Maybe well, all, you, like, you know, that's that possible. Something? Although we would control that would, con our analyses would control for that as well. Because uh, yes. we control for all, all lean mass, you know, fat-free mass, I should say, yeah. versus fat mass. And so we've, we control for that. But you're right yeah. that, you know, to the extent that that happens and it's gray matter, not white matter, which seems to be, yeah, that, yeah, that can mm. contribute for sure. For sure. Yeah. So Herman, like I've always understood that post 35, it's all downhill. We're in our twilight years mm. and uh, we're just really waiting it out until uh, the inevitable happens. But with regards to our metabolism, it is, you know, I've heard that it is ticking down yeah. or decade on decade, but are you saying that that might be happening, but it's not our metabolism, it's muscle loss or bone density loss, that feel, kind of thing yeah. that is contributing? So a few things are happening. One is, yeah, yeah, if you're not active, then you might lose fat, you might lose muscle mass. And if that's happening, then, then total expenditure is going to go down. We, we would, we're not talking about that in this analysis because we're talking about after you control for, for lean mass, right? Mm. Taking the body size changes out of it. Okay. Um, but that's true that, that, you know, your experience will be that your metabolism is going down if you lose fat-free mass. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But, uh, but beyond that, there's nothing happening in terms of calories. You, the, the, your cells are just as busy at 40 and 50 as they were at 20 and 30. And so what's yeah. what, what must be happening, right? I'm 44. Mm -hmm. um, I know for a fact that when I hit 30, I felt like my body was changing. When I hit 40, yeah. I felt like it was changing again. You know, and I'm an active person. I try to exercise. I try to eat healthy. And I, I still felt this very much. And it can't be metabolism. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. what's happening is, well, we know, for example, in, in Western cultures that are energy rich, uh, you have um, high testosterone in your 20, in your 20s, mm -hmm. the highest is in your 20s or so. Mm -hmm. And then it slowly comes down. So perhaps I was experiencing that decline. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. um, women go through similar sort of lifetime changes in hormone profiles, especially at menopause, of course. So women mm -hmm. often report changes in metabolism, they, what feels like a change in metabolism at menopause, but likely that's hormonal changes, obviously, but yeah. th th they're changing the way you feel. Um, and they could even change sort of how likely you are to put on fat versus lean muscle. That's interesting to think about. But anyway, yeah. um, it's not actually how many calories you burn. It's not how busy your cells are. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. And of yeah. course, you mentioned we're referring to the Western population and how you have um, developed your knowledge over time, of course, comes from your work with more traditional populations like the Hadza. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Herman, I'm obviously completely ignorant because I suppose one of the surprising things when I read about research like that is how on earth do traditional populations like this still exist in the world? Like, how, how, is that, how have they been relatively untouched? It's harder and harder uh, for them. And I think, you know, untouched isn't quite the right way to think about it. Um, okay. So I don't know if what the equivalent would be in New Zealand or, or uh, I mean, obviously the Aboriginal groups. No, right. That's not what I mean. So my, the, the comparison I was going to make was to the Amish populations here in the States. Okay. Um, so if you're familiar with them, these are people who yes. move, cultures who moved to the States in, you know, like the 1700s mm. and, and have tried to keep that same farming culture mm. ever since. They, many of the, you know, really traditional groups don't have electricity in their homes. They don't use mm. motorized anything. It's all horse and buggy. Um mm -hmm. And, you know, but of course, you know, around them zipping madly about is the, is the rest of the world, right? And yeah, there's yeah, billboards yeah. and there's radio. And they, I mean, they, they know about all that stuff. They're not, 
not, you know, they can see it all and hear it all they, yeah. and they come across it, but they keep very much to their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Hods are a bit like that. I mean, it's not quite as developed around them, obviously, as it would be here in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, but they know about the outside world, you know, they know, mm-hmm. and there's people who they come across regularly who are, are farmers or, and so they understand all that. It's not like they're not, they're not like, you know, trapped in amber, right? Um, no, no. But they, they really are proud of their culture and, and rightfully so. And, um, and so, and, and they've been able to hold on to it. And what's great is that the Tanzanian government has given them the space to, to, to do that. That's mm. something that we tragically screwed up uh, mm. here in the States and a lot of other places as well, is we did not give our, you know, our indigenous groups that kind of space uh, and with horrible consequences. But, yeah. but, but luckily, there are a handful of places where that's, they've been able to hold on, and, and the Hadza in Tanzania are one of them. Mm. And it's amazing that you had the opportunity to go in and, and be able to study and observe and sit in and, um, and be part of that culture for like a period of time. So with your research, like how long did you spend in the environment? And mm-hmm. do you want to sort of talk, talk to us a little bit about the Hadza? Like what is yeah. their lifestyle like? Like what, yeah. Yeah, so the Hadza, they're, they're traditional hunter-gatherers. What does that mean? Well, they, they, um, they live in sort of open savanna in northern Tanzania. Uh, they live in grass houses, um, about 20 or so people to a camp. The camps are sort of spread around either in, anywhere from an hour's walk to maybe half a day's walk apart from each other. Um, and they don't have any, by hunting and gathering, we, we're saying they don't have any any domesticated crops or domesticated animals, no mm-hmm. electricity, no machines, no plumbing, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, men hunt with bow and arrow, mm-hmm. and they also uh, chop into trees to get. The, there are lots of bee species there that make nests in uh, old trees, in hollow trees, and they get a lot of honey from that. So there's they, the men get honey and they hunt wild game mm-hmm. with bow and arrow that they make. Um, women dig up tubers, wild tubers, or they collect berries or other plant foods to eat. And so it's all wild foods every day. And mm. they've been doing that, you know, for millennia. We don't, who knows when they started exactly, but probably for, for thousands and thousands of years. Mm. Mm. Um, and so when we want to study them, right, it's a, it's basically, a, you know, it, it feels a bit like a, a complicated camping trip, right? Because you take all of your scientific kit, uh, computers and any kinds of, you know, uh, biological sort of measurement stuff you want to take out. And it all has to fit in the back of a Land Rover. And, and, and I should say that you need to get all the government permits for all of this, because there's a lot of protections for, uh, for very good reasons for these kind of groups. So we get all of the government permits for this. Um, we get, uh, we go to the HOD, you know, I collaborate with a guy named Brian Wood. Brian Wood is a Hadza, Hadza expert. He's probably spent more nights in a Hadza camp in the last 20 years than he's spent in his home. You know, wow. yeah, he's spent tons of time there. He speaks, uh, he speaks some Hadza. Um, uh, we, when we work with the Hadza, we, we communicate in Swahili, which they speak okay. fluently. They, they're bilingual because in that part of Africa, any other tribe that you might bump up against, will, every, the shared language is Swahili. And then everybody has their own tribal language that they will have learned at home. Mm. So they're bilingual and they, they are fluent in Swahili. Anyway, um, yeah, so you pack up the Land Rover with all your food and all your camping kit, as well as all your science kit. And mm. then you go out. And, you know, it depends on the kind of research you're doing, how long you might stay in a particular camp. Um, 
the work I've done has had me in Hadza camps for, you know, a couple months at a time, sometimes, mm. sometimes, sometimes shorter. Sometimes you go camp to camp and spend a day or two in each camp kind of doing quick assessments. Depends on the, on the research. Yeah. Um, you know, Brian has spent literally months and months in Hadza camps. Mm-hmm. Pre-COVID, um, what was, you know, when was the last time that you were in one of those camps? Oh, yeah. COVID's been a mess because we were going to go last yeah. summer and we're going to go this summer and haven't been able to. Uh, it's fall 2019. Um, I thought a couple of things which were quite hilarious in your book. One was when you were, I believe it was your book that I read this in, or maybe it was another podcast that one of your initial trips there and someone had told you to go out and observe the activity of the Hadza when they were hunting. You were like, walking, walking, walking. (laughs) This is all they're doing. They're just walking. Do I have to like report this? And then whoever it was, and maybe it was Brian or another more experienced. Yeah. He was like, mate, yes, that's what they do. (laughs) Yeah. He was like, if you're not, if you don't say anything, we assume they're walking. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like a couple of like super interesting things, or at least I thought was really interesting, was the the cultural differences and and how they uh interact with each other with regards to um sharing or lo- these like pleasantries mm. that we that we have yeah. in our modern that we yeah. think are polite yet completely unnecessary in their lifestyle. <laughs> I know. I love that too. Um, it's uh so so one thing you notice is that when somebody comes back to camp with food. They just, they, there's no words exchanged. They just start kind of handing it to people. People come up to them with a handout and, and they just kind of share. And it's like kind yeah. of sharing snacks at school kind of thing. But but nothing is ever, they talk about, they're talking about whatever, but they're not talking about the food. They're just, yeah. that just happens. Yeah. Um, and you notice people come up to each other and say, za, which means give. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, it it just seems, my, my initial impression was like, how come you're not saying please and thank you? Yeah. Hello? Didn't your mom and teach you, you know? Um, and, and then I understood, oh my God, I say please and thank you because in my culture, that person might say no, Yeah. right? It's the yeah. expectation that they're doing a big favor. This is a huge, nice thing for them to do. Oh my gosh, yeah. they're being so altruistic and sharing, right? And you think like, okay, which culture is the not nice culture? The one where it's expected that you're going to share or the one yeah. where I have to beg? basically. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you're like, Oh, they share. So, like, it's just, it's just the bread and butter of their day is sharing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and so, I mean, they understand one thing I try to make clear in the book. It isn't because people will misread this. It isn't that they don't understand gratitude mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and asking, you know, they, they get it, but it's just so kind of beneath them to ask. It's so interesting. And, you know, that's really important too, because they share everything. Um, yeah. And they're together all the time. And there is no real personal space in the way that we, Mm. one time I was, I was moving camps between camps one time, my first season there. And, uh, I, you know, it was like time to get, to move on to camps. And that's kind of a, you kind of feel sad because you've made really good friends. You've been there for a few weeks at this place and now you're going to move to a different camp and whatever. But so you're just in the busy with the, with the work of it. And I was, um, you know, we each stay in our own little tents and I was in my own little two-person kind of pup tent there. And I had my feet out of the door, and I had my head and shoulders in the door of my tent, mm-hmm. um, digging through my stuff and kind of putting it into bags. And if you if you camp, that's not a lot of space, right? You're sort of, yeah, yeah. the door is just big enough just for you. Uh, and while I'm doing that, uh, this guy, Isaiah, just comes busting into my tent. Like shoulder, <laughs> like shoulder, shoulder up with me. And I, I look over at him and he looks over at me and I was like, 
what you know it like i had to check myself because that's a violation man you don't <laughs> it's my tent like you don't come to my tent and uh and he just had the biggest smile on his face i realized oh he's helping he thinks i mean you know for him he's just like yeah, yeah. i guess this is what we're doing <laughs> i guess this is the job right now and we all pitch in and so and i was like oh hi you know uh, totally totally uh you know gobsmacked by the whole thing but, it, but it's, that's just it like you just help yeah. and you just are yeah, around yeah. and that's what you do um and uh it's just so you know it it bring a tear to your eye watching that happen it's just so sweet you know yeah. um and it's and it's sincere you know it's really meant and um I love it. I, that's one of the reasons I love being there. And I think it's really important to remember that because, you know, hunting and gathering only works if there's the and. Yeah. Right? Yep. Uh, the, this is the reason that humans are the dominant species on the planet is that we are hunting and gathering is a sort of world beating uh, strategy. You cannot, mm. you know, because you take all the advantages of being an herbivore and all the advantages yeah. of being a carnivore and you put them yeah. together. And we're the only species that does that. And, yeah. um, yeah, but it only works if you agree to share at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. And, um, and you know, when I read, read your book, right, this is like one of the strategies that have allowed us, isn't it, to mm. evolve and live as long as we have. Yeah. Because, like I've heard people talk about the grandmother hypothesis. Mm. You know, what's the point in keeping women around post-reproductive yeah. uh, age in, in part to help gather calories and, and feed the, the, you know, it's a big piece of it. Yeah. I mean, I would, mm -hmm. I would go broader. I didn't, uh, mm -hmm. I know other anthropologists who would feel like, yes, absolutely. The grandmothers are so important, but even, even broader than that, all yeah. sharing is important. All the grandparents and uncles and aunts and, you know, the cousins who don't have kids yet, everybody shares. And because of that, we live in this sort of energy rich environment uh, that we kind of make for ourselves. It lets us have these big expensive brains. It lets mm. us be, um, it lets us have a, a lot of physical activity. It lets us mm -hmm. have uh, babies very often. So, mm. you know, humans have, they have kids more often. Um, uh, babies, you know, brothers and sisters are born about maybe two to four years apart in a Hadza family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they don't use birth control really. They like big families. So they kind of have as many kids as, as they, as they do. Mm. Um, and so, but, but, you know, if you look at other species, that kind of level of how many, you know, how often do you have kids, other primates, our body size don't have kids that often because they don't, they're on their own. And so mm. moms are at such an energy disadvantage, right? Moms have to pay for everything yeah. in terms of calories. Mm. And so it just takes a long time for moms to, to be able to have the next kid. Um, mm. Anyway, so the, I think this is, you know, you get back to how I got into this. How cool is this to think about all these energy flows and and how this is really the fundamental stuff that drives the engine mm. that is our species, that is our species evolution. I, this is why I get so excited about it. Oh, totally. And what an experience to be able to spend time with people like the Hudson. Yeah. Like something else from your book, which I found super interesting, um, which relates to their, I suppose, um, what they value, maybe, um, is what happened when the fires occurred. <laughs> you talk about that time yeah. when, when, you know, their, um, their houses essentially burnt down and how surprised you were at their reactions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was really, uh, that, that happens pretty, with some regularity out there, they get bushfires through in the dry period. Mm. And uh, it was, again, it was a story from my first, a very eventful first season there. A few big things happened. Or maybe, you know, maybe they're always that big, but the first time that happens to you, you just can't believe it. Um, yeah, we had bushfires come through. 
And, you know, that you're living in a big sea of golden dry grass that's mm. always high. Mm. And the, so the flames are jumping, you know, five, six feet off the ground. And, um, you know, you're hoping that the acacia trees that are scattered around don't catch fire and everything is dry and it comes swinging through camp. And we were, I, you know, it was a lot to kind of get our stuff out of the way. We thought our, all of our stuff was going to burn. We were able to get out of that, thankfully. Um, and the Hods were like just having a kind of a party. And they cut some boughs from trees and were beating the fire thing down so it didn't get their houses and everything was fine. And then about three hours later, the wind kind of shifted at midday and the fire hadn't quite gone out. And it came back fast and took out so a few women's houses, families' homes. Um, and I was just, I was like, oh my God, this is a tragedy, you know. We're, this is it. We're done. We're going to go home, I guess. You know, how do you carry on? Yeah, imagine if you were doing the research in a community here in Chapel Hill um, in the States yeah. and it, people's houses burned down, you would stop doing research. That would be that would be you would be done and you would be yeah. it would be a tragedy and that would be it. Um, and I thought, oh, my God. And um, the women were like, oh, what? I, I was like, I'm so sorry that this happened. And they're like, huh? What do you mean? Oh, the fire. Oh, whatever. Yeah. We'll just pull down. <laughs> We'll build, we'll build the next one. house tomorrow. It's fine. You know, pat on the back. Like, that's sweet of you to not understand this at all. But, uh, <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. And and before I go on and um, just obviously talk about your research and your findings and implications for us, yeah. has your experience in their environment changed how you see the world and changed oh, yeah. how you how you act? Like, how is you know what what's that been like, Herman? Uh, I think you know. It's a major dose of the kind of, of broadening perspective that you should get from any kind of travel. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the idea for, is it Mark Twain? Who, who said the, the reason to travel is to go to another country and come back and see your own, for, you know, new for the first time? Mm. And I butchered that quote, but I like the sentiment, right? That it, it's a way to, it, when you see somebody else's culture and you live in it for a while, you just re- calculate all the stuff in your own, right? It gives you a fresh perspective and it's definitely done that. I mean, not worrying so much about the calendar and the schedule, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. nobody's trying to make deadlines there, right? Mm-hmm. There's no Wednesdays in Hodsland mm-hmm. uh, or Friday evenings or you know, Friday at five kind of stuff, you know, or Monday mornings for that matter. So you know, it's, uh, it's what they find important in their life. And we know this because we've, you know, Brian does a lot of work on sort of social connectivity and networks and and that kind of stuff. So this is, I'm not just telling stories. This is, we actually have data on this. If you ask them what they find important, it's those social connections. It's being with good friends and people who they trust and and family Um, and being able to do, you know, the kind of live lifestyle they like that, that they have worked so hard to hold on to, right? They don't Mm. want to get the area developed. So, so if they, if they can live that life, if they can have those social connections, that's, for them, that's that's it. That that's that's mm. what you work for, um, and you realize when you come back, you think, man, why am I as busy as I am doing stuff that I don't even know why I do it? You know, mm. I'm not even sure mm. why I care about that committee or this deadline or whatever. And sometimes you're not the boss, and sometimes you don't get the choice. But some, mm. but a lot of times you do, and we give ourselves mm. busy work, or we we give ourselves stress, or we give ourselves deadlines, or we make choices that are work based and not family based. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it's, sometimes those are unavoidable, but sometimes yeah. they're not. And, and if they're not, you should be thinking about what's important. 
And I, I think yeah. that's helped me kind of understand that better for myself. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because of course, you know, from what we understand from research, social connectivity is important regardless of where you live and and yeah. and you know your your environment. Yet it seems like there's just so much more opportunity to value that when you don't have the the schedules or the stuff or the mm. other stuff which people which we have placed this importance on, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah. it's uh, yeah. I think you said it exactly right. And and you know, mm. if you ask, it's a health issue too, right? I mean, mm. if you, one of the big um, factors in health, heart health, mental health, all of it, is uh, do people feel lonely? Do mm. people feel unconnected? Do they feel unvalued? And um, and we, we know these are important things. Yeah. And but we don't. We'd rather treat it with diet and exercise, which we should do too. Yeah. But there's been a, I would actually like to see a focus shift away, and not away. That's the wrong way to say it. But get a, you know, let's build another layer on this, mm. uh, and think about connectivity as as part of health. And I know people are working on that, but I, I think in the in the diet and exercise world that I kind of am in, by virtue of this research I do, um, mm. I, I wish we would keep better focus on that. On that, I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah, no, I I um appreciate that. Um, so Herman, to talk about your research, can you so, can you sort of just outline for those of us who have or for those people who haven't read the book and don't really know, um, mm. what it is you were looking at and what you found? Yeah, so we wanted to understand total energy expenditure, all the calories burned per day, mm-hmm. in a hunting and gathering community because we knew. Um, we, you know, as an evolutionary anthropologist, I, this is what I love to think about and how energy flows through the body and what it's used for. And, but we had no measurements of energy expenditures in hunting and gathering communities and humans, we come, our species is a hunting and gathering species. We come from a hunting and gathering genus. So the genus Homo, right, which we're part of Homo sapiens Mm. have have been hunting and gathering for two and a half million years, Mm. that it is the lifestyle to which we are evolved. Um, and so, you know, you can't sort of understand the species without understanding its ecologically relevant context. And so that's where we went. Fine. Uh, had no idea that we would be really kind of stepping into obesity research exactly, other than we thought, well, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how, uh, you know, modern life doesn't burn enough calories. We're not active mm-hmm. enough. And so, you know, one thing we can do while we're doing this work uh, is we can, at least we'll be able to document what that difference is. You know, how many more calories a day would you burn if you were a hunter-gatherer? We'll actually have a, be able to give the world a number, and won't that be useful? Mm. So that was kind of a secondary aim, but we wanted to, we, we were aware that that might be a helpful thing to be able to say and, 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 and add. We went out and did this work in 2010, um, 9 and 10, took a long time to get funding and permits. But anyway, got back, we're looking at the data, and you know, we were totally shocked uh, mm. because the Hadza men and women that we worked with had the same daily energy expenditure, the same calories per day as men and women in the US and mm. men and women in Europe and other industrialized countries. And it was a total shocker, right? Because mm. These men and women, the hobs of men and women, they get more physical activity walking and digging, digging and everything else, more activity in a day than the typical American gets in a week. Mm. Okay. So it's, mm. they're hugely physically active. We, and, you know, we were sure that they would be burning tons more calories. They're not. Mm. Um, 
so that was a huge shock. And um, that's been, you know, that, that has driven my research ever since because nothing's better in science than, than getting handed a, a really interesting puzzle. Yeah. So what is actually going on? Yeah. Well, um, let me just first say that we've done this now in other traditional populations, uh, mm-hmm. the Shuar population in Ecuador, uh, who live in the sort of Amazon basin, um, the Chimani in, in very rural Bolivia. Um, We've looked now across species, so we've been mm. able to show that, for example, uh, monkeys in a zoo have the same energy expenditures as monkeys in the wild. Mm-hmm. And even in laboratory settings, if you take a mouse and you make it work harder and harder for its food, its energy expenditure doesn't go up, up, up with how hard mm. you make it work. It actually mm. kind of stays the same at, from baseline. Mm. So this is the first thing we did is make sure we weren't wrong, right? Yeah. And um, and so I think this is a pretty solid observation now that we can say that when you are more active, you don't necessarily burn more calories. There's variation in how many calories people burn anyway. So yeah. you might burn more calories because that's how randomness works. But yeah. uh, it's not necessarily because you're more active. Yeah. And the activity has a small effect on your expenditure. Okay, so what's going on? So first of all, we checked whether or not with the Hadza study, for example, we checked whether or not um, they were somehow more efficient yeah. at, at walking. Walking is most of what they do. Maybe they've figured out a way to be more efficient at it. That's not the case. When they, mm-hmm. we've measured with a mask, you know, in a trackway in their camps that we built, um, yeah. the cost for to walk a kilometer is the same for them as for me. Yeah. Um, instead, what we think is going on, and this is an active area of research, we're still pinning this down, but what we think is going on is that the body is changing how it spends energy on other physiological tasks, mm. ramping that stuff down. Because mm-hmm. remember, we talked about your metabolism is everything, right? So there's so yeah. many systems that you can kind of pull a little bit from, and you make space for this bigger amount of energy being spent on physical, physical activity. Mm. And so basically, they're, they're buffering, they're adjusting to their high levels of activity by spending less on other stuff, so that mm-hmm. the net result is the total calories burned per day isn't you know, any different than it would be if they were sedentary. Okay. Because I, you know, when you look at energy expenditure, you know, the calculations that are used and, yeah. you know, when I'm teaching my students and I'm like, you know, basal metabolic rates, about 70% of your total energy expenditure, mm. then you've got your physical activity. Like, is this a, like, does your research sort of shift? Does it rewrite textbooks? Is it, you know, well, as we understand it? I guess and it depends on who's should, writing right? the textbooks. It depends on who's <laughs> yeah. writing the textbooks. Um, I I think people are are bringing are are taking this on uh, more and more, which is nice to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it. I think it should be part of what we teach, you know, in in nutrition one hundred and one and metabolism one hundred and one, because yeah. um, it just is not the case. It just yeah. simply is not the case in study after study after study. Not just my lab, by the way. So you don't have to believe mm. me. You can look at other mm. stuff, right? And it is not the case that if I know, for example, how much you weigh and how active you are that I'm particularly good at predicting how many calories you burn because the, how much, yeah. a, how active you are doesn't really tell me much. Right. Yeah. Um, and so those calorie calculators, to the extent that they work, they work because you start off by saying, this is my BMR. Mm-hmm. Right. And like you said, that's about 60 to 70% of how many calories you burn. So how wrong could you get? Could you be with the rest yeah. of it? Yeah. 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 Good call. So how does that how does your finding with the Hadza, how does that sort of translate into what, it, how meaningful is that for us? So, you know, yeah. how do we use this information? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really important to think about. Um, 
First of all, it does not mean that exercise doesn't matter. Let's start with mm. that one. Yeah. Uh, the Hadza don't have heart disease. They don't have type 2 diabetes. They don't have a- the, the diseases of aging that we think of as inevitable in the mm. West. They really don't have. Um, and other traditional groups are the same way. And, and being so physically active is a big reason for that. So exercise is super important. Okay. Can I just ask, how, sure. do, how do they die? What's their, you know, uh, is it, it it's the- always infections. It's, I mean, you know, not always, but in uh, the large percentage of, of mortality is from uh, acute infection. Okay. Yeah. Cause they can't get antibiotics, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's sad. Um, the, yeah. So, um, you have to exercise, but we should rethink what exercise is doing for us. Exercise is not going to have as big of an effect on your metabolism as you've probably been told. Mm-hmm. It's not going to have as big of an effect on your weight as you've been told, in mm. part because of that, because of mm. the changes in metabolism that your body will make to adjust to it. Mm. Um, and therefore, when we think about obesity and obesity-related disease and how to address them, I think we need to focus on diet. And mm. that's whether we're talking about in our own lives, if we need to get control of our weight, we need to focus on diet. If we're mm. talking um, at a community or population level, uh, we still should encourage exercise, but we should not um, think that it's going to fix obesity. We need to fix food if we're going to fix obesity. And, uh, you know, I think we need, so, so basically bottom line is you need to think about exercise and diet as two different tools with two different jobs. Now, some of this ends up sounding like the same old, same old. Oh, it's that diet and exercise, of course. Yeah. Ah, but here's the difference. You can't trade one for the other. Mm. Right. Because if it really is just diet and exercise as two sides of the same coin, which is what we the way it's often talked about, you know, you got to get that energy deficit. You can either exercise more or eat less. Mm. No, actually, that's not how it works. Mm. You need the energy deficit, but you're only going to really get there with diet. Yeah. And, um, and exercise does something else. Because when you and it, it's interesting to think about. So as a nutritionist, when I'm working with clients and we're yeah. looking at that, you know, calories in, calories out model, which is you know, that simplistic way with which, you know, yeah. you might create a calorie deficit. It's that, you know, people might be on super low calories, but their body has created, has sort of turned down the energy required for all of these things, which yeah. means that actually, whilst they might be on low calories and might be exercising more, that deficit isn't created. Is that... Well, that you're, so you're bringing up another issue here. I mean, this is a complex system. So you're bringing up another yeah. complexity, which is if you cut the calories too sharply, mm. Right, then your body can respond um, by reducing its metabolic rate uh, in response to that calorie deficit. So, you know, if you go on a crash diet, then yeah, then you're right. You have to you have to lose weight as slowly as you gained it. I mean, I think that's. Mm. Um, and I should say I'm not a clinician, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. but this is my read of the physiology and, and what I know from the clinical literature. Um, yeah. The it, and I think the other thing is too, and I would be curious to hear your thoughts on this. Um, you know, I think you need to, to do that sustainably. Um, you need to find a diet that you're going to be able, that doesn't make you feel like it's a crash diet that makes you feel satisfied. Right. Um, and I think there are lessons to get there from the Hadza as well. Um, you know, eating whole foods, eating high fiber Mm. diets is one way to Mm. do it. Um, Mm. people have good luck with eating higher protein diets as well. Right. But moving away from this kind of diet wars about, you know, what's the magic nutrient or what's mm. the evil nutrient? Mm. And instead moving toward, okay, 
I need to get my calories down. And if I am miserable, I'm never going to stick to it. So I need to get my calories down in a way that doesn't make me feel miserable. That isn't that, that sounds to me like the, the, the holy grail of nutrition. That really does. And it does make me think I need to change my Twitter feed because all I see is people fighting about fat and carbohydrate, uh, um, which it. It, which completely misses the, it's so reductionist, right? Yeah. Um, I just find it so interesting because you've got that sort of weight loss kind of side of side of the coin. So, you know, just bumping up your activity isn't necessarily going to result in weight loss when you have that, um, when you drop your calories too low. Does this mean, Herman, so if, if I think about it, if you turn, if I think the opposite, would eating more therefore keep your metabolism high? So if the Hadza had more calories available, do you think that the energy expenditure would be greater? I don't think so. So there's two pieces of that. Okay. And so um, if we, so the first part of that's been done in the lab. So Mike Rosenbaum mm -hmm. and, and Rudy Leibel have done great studies on this in the 90s. You yeah. overfeed somebody by 10%. Yeah. And their metabolism goes up 10%. Yeah, interesting. Um, not just the digestion costs, but like well, all of it. You know, your body's yeah. sort of tracking both. It, it wants to yeah. match expenditure and intake. Yeah. So you're right. If you increase your how much you eat, at least in the short term, your body will try to will try to adjust. Now, if you okay, if you sit down and eat an entire cheesecake, that's probably beyond what your body can do. But yeah. in general, within limits, yeah. Now, would the Hadza have higher expenditures if they had more food? I don't think that they are food limited. Actually, mm, okay. okay. They don't spend, you know, they spend a fair amount of their day out foraging, but they also spend a fair amount of their day hanging out at camp. I mean, if they were yeah. really starving, or if they were really, they could they could forage more, and there's more food yeah. to get. They aren't in a, in a sort of barren landscape, right? So they're actually yeah. they can get as much food as they feel that they need, and so I don't think that they're wishing either consciously or subconsciously that they had more food all the time. So yeah, I don't okay. think that would change anything, but I don't know. Yeah, interesting. So a lot of, I guess, things that I think about and things that I work with with people is people who are on like seemingly very low calories and they're not, it's not that they're misreported. I mean, they might like, yeah. be, you know, they're estimating a lot, but they're not, not by hundreds and hundreds. Yet they are also working out or they're athletes and they're training for a marathon, half marathon, mm -hmm. uh, Ironman, that kind of thing. And so, and, and they're, they're, unable to lose weight and that's one of their major sort of considerations yeah. so in this context i try to encourage them to gradually increase their calorie like sort of like put their disbelief aside and gradually increase their calories because with the hope that actually what's going on is that calorie deficit that's been that they think has been created isn't there because their yeah. their metabolism has sort of just shifted and so we're trying to encourage that to to increase yeah. Which sort of speaks to those studies that you were just talking about, that sort of 10% sort of, you know, you yeah. sort of do it slowly. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting to hear. Um, I would just say, you know, I think there's been so much misinformation that people mm. don't, I mean, people like don't believe in calories or something like that, which is sort of like not believing in kilograms. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know what that means. Um, but, you know, your, the bathroom scale is the best tool any of us have to know if the energy that's coming in is matching the energy going out. Yeah. And um, there's a whole lot of mysticism and charlatanism out there that would tell you that it's more complicated than that, but it honestly isn't. Yeah. Um, and so if you can just believe it, you know, it's almost like when you're lost. I don't know if you've had this experience hiking or whatever. I, I've had it. You can't, you can't lose your way and you're looking at the map and you're trying to make the map fit what you're looking at because you're mm. sure you're here. 
Mm-hmm. And so you're trying, is that the mountain over there? And is this the trail? And it, it kind of turns, yeah, no, it kind of turns to the right, but you know, you're, you know, you're not really looking at the right part of the map, but you can't imagine where else you are. So you're sure. And you, you, you bend the map, right? We call yeah. this bending the map to fit what you want to be true, which is that you're here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, you say, well, this map must be wrong mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's not wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong about where yeah. you are and the map is right. And so it's the same with the scale, right? Like we don't want the scale to go up or down or whatever it is. And we want to believe, so we tell an elaborate story about calories and it's fiction and sorry, no, it's the map. It, that's your map, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and you want to do it in a healthy way, in a careful way. And there's also sort of culture and psychology wrapped up in it too. And I don't want to downplay that, but mm-hmm. it is, um, you really do have to trust, trust the data if you yeah. want to use a kind of evidence-based approach, I think. Yeah, nice. So can you kind of talk about the Tour de France riders then and the amount of oh, energy? Yeah. yeah, so how what's the so what's going on there, like with regards yeah. to the energy that they consume and burn and Yeah. So this energy constraint that your body seems to be doing, mm-hmm. um, I talk about in the book. Uh your body's trying to keep your energy expended day to day within a kind of a narrow range, you know, and you'll change day to day, of course, mm-hmm. if you're more or less active, but it's it's trying to keep that average in a in a narrow range. Um you can do something like the Tour de France, and obviously your body is, you know, that's way out of that range, right? You can push it for, you can do an ultra marathon, or you can do a Tour mm. de France ride, or you can, you know, there's all sorts of great examples of, of pushing the body to those limits. And so that's a, a real challenge to this constrained energy idea. And so we looked at this and said, well, okay, how far can you push beyond that ceiling? And how long can you push for it? And it's it's really kind of cool. So you can push... Um, way above that ceiling if you only have to do it for a day. Yeah. You can push a fair amount if you're going to do it for a month. You can push mm. just a little bit above it if you're going to do it for a few months, right? And mm. so the longer you go, the more you're constrained to getting fit back underneath that that metabolic ceiling. Mm. And the very, very long-term limit on what the body is capable of maintaining seems to be about two and a half times your basal metabolic rate. And yeah. the reason we use that as a, as a marker is um, – you know, big people are going to have big people have have big machinery for taking in energy. Big stomachs yeah. and livers. Small people have small machinery. So you're kind of trying to to size it to the machinery that you're carrying around to get that energy back in. We think at above two and a half times your basal metabolic rate, you don't have big enough machinery to pull the energy in and replenish what you burned that day. Yeah. Uh, and so the very very long term limit on on expenditure would be that most people live well below that. By the way, and the constraint yeah. seems to keep us you know day to day life in the Hadza, for example, is about one point. 8, 1.7, 1.8 times your basal metabolic rate. That's where a lot of us live. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's well below that 2.5. But anyway, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's what we think is going on. Um, we'll see if anybody can, you know, break through that metabolic ceiling that we, we plotted out when we were doing the work. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course, there's the, um, the West, is it Westerterp study looking at marathoners and, and half marathoners and, now, you mentioned that in the book with regards to the amount of energy that these people yeah. have burned. Do you want to just sort of talk us through that? Uh, so there's the study. I want to make sure I've got the right one. So there's one where people ran. Oh, oh, that, oh, sorry. Right. The Western Terp, the half marathon training study. Yes. This is a great example of, of your body adjusting. So men and women were trained to run a half marathon. Mm-hmm. And so over the course of a year, they, you know, they were totally sedentary, didn't exercise at all at the beginning, and they slowly ramped up their exercise program because you can't start all at once to yeah. where, so that they could get to where they could run a half marathon, 13 miles. And um, they measured energy expenditure at baseline before they exercised. 
And then every couple months they checked in on them. And what's cool is that in both the men and women, in the first time they checked in on them after they were exercising a couple months in, their total daily energy expenditures went up. Right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you'd predict. That's what your textbook probably says should happen. They, they were more active. They, they went up. But now we know, okay, if it went up, whatever it was, 10% based on their exercise regime, well, when we double their exercise, now we should go up 20%. And we triple mm -hmm. their exercises, you go up 30%. We, should, we now have what we should know will happen as mm -hmm. they get more and more active. And that doesn't happen at all. In fact, what happens, the women, their, their total energy expenditures came back down a little bit towards baseline. So mm -hmm. at the end of the study, um, at the end of a year of training, they were burning a little bit more energy than they were at baseline, but not much. And not as much as you'd expect from all the exercise they were doing. Not anywhere near that. Same with the men. And so it's just a great example of the body adjusting over time to your exercise load, right? It doesn't adjust right away. So at first, that first month check-in, they saw the higher expenditures. But then as the body adapted, it didn't keep on increasing. It actually came down a bit in the women. There are other studies like this too. There's a great study called the Midwest Study. They had a 16-month exercise program. At the beginning versus the end, they measure energy expenditures. So at baseline, before you do any exercise, versus month 16, when you've been exercising with supervision, so you're not cheating, for 16 months, energy expenditures didn't change. Crazy, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But absolutely true. Um, and so it's, uh, and there, there's other, other examples of that. So, you know, you, you start exercising tomorrow, you'll see some weight change right away before your yeah, body adjusts. Yeah. Uh, you should do it anyway, you'll feel great. Yes. But those weight changes might not be durable, mm. and the energy expenditure of the metabolism changes won't be durable. And you're going to come yeah. back down towards baseline, maybe all the way back to baseline, maybe you know somewhere toward baseline before you're done. You know, in in a few months, because that's your body's going to adjust. Yeah, and I guess you know if I'm thinking about it correctly, it's like if I'm looking at my Garmin watch when I'm going out for a run, right. and it tells me that I've burnt this many calories in that run because this is my weight and this is the yeah. intensity that I've run at and, and all yeah. of the other factors that might calculate that. As I understand it, that's inaccurate anyway, but actually that, that's the less important part of the puzzle because <laughs> it's the background stuff that's being sort of um, yeah. drawn from, isn't it? So that doesn't yeah. necessarily change there, but it's yeah. just what's going on in the background. That's right. You're, you probably did burn something like what it told you for the run, but yeah. it's everything else that's, you know, so it, yeah, if that yeah. the run calories is, pro is fine. That is I don't know. Maybe it's okay, but when it try if it tries to tell you how many calories you burn for the day, yeah, you know, that's, that's where a, the that's miscalculation kind of happens. Yeah. yeah, interesting. I've heard you talk actually that some of these, like the the energy cons uh, conservation model, is in the other processes are downregulated, and we've talked about hormones and mm -hmm. and the rest of it. But you've talked about this conservation as being a good thing. Oh yeah, Herman. Yeah, mm -hmm. so can you describe why it might be a good thing to have this, this drop yeah, in the Yeah, this is energy? a, yep, absolutely. This is an active area of research. We're, we're still sort of chasing down all the little cellular switches and, and knobs on this one. But um, we know that when we look at people who exercise versus those who don't, yeah, people who exercise have lower levels of inflammation. Mm. They have lower stress uh, levels. They, their cortisol levels and their epinephrine levels, adrenaline levels in response to stress are lower. Mm -hmm. There are reproductive hormones, estrogen for women and testosterone for men are in a healthier place, a slightly lower level than they are among people who are totally sedentary. And exercise mm -hmm. seems to be protective against reproductive cancers. Mm -hmm. And so those are adjustments we think that I, I've suggested, I've uh, argued. Those adjustments are your body ramping down unnecessary immune activity, 
That's inflammation. Yeah. Ramping down stress reaction, ramping down um, you know, reproductive hormones a bit. Not, I don't want to give scare people off. It's, we're not talking about infertility issues or anything like that, but to just put it in the health in a healthier range so that you you have room basically for the physical activity. Mm. And um, that seems to be what's going on. We have all kinds of fun evidence for that, but uh, we're, we're in the middle right now of trying to chase that down um, experimentally and, and show exactly how all those cellular changes happen. Mm. And, you know, you are an evolutionary um, anthropologist mm -hmm. and not necessarily an exercise physiologist or someone who sort of, who is in, is in the traditional field, if you like, of exercise science and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. How has your research been received? over the years uh it's been a mix a lot of people i would say the majority of people at least who who have reached out have been really supportive and said oh thanks for a lot this helps me understand what's going on with myself yeah i've had uh doctors you know in the uh, and other healthcare people in the obesity field say thank you this helps me make you know helps me with my patients and help them mm -hmm. understand the role of exercise and diet and how this all fits together yeah. Um, so that's been really rewarding because again, you know, I'm an anthropologist. I never expected to be in any kind of clinically relevant <laughs> work, but you know, people have, of course, have been pushed back. I think people haven't always understood what I was trying to say, right. Which is on me. You know, they, they say, well, are you telling me that if I run a marathon today, I'm not going to burn more energy today than if I rest tomorrow. And, you know, no, I'm not saying that. Of course, you're going to have big days and small days, but, and people say, well, you're saying that exercise doesn't matter. And I, that's the furthest thing away from what we're trying to say. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's been pushback based and, and other people just don't believe it either because, mm. you know, whatever they, they're, they don't, for whatever reason, they will not believe it. And yeah. okay, that's, you know, that's up to them too. But overall, it's been pretty positive, I think. And it's been fun. Um, you know, this is what science is, right? It's a marketplace of ideas and, mm. uh, and data. And mm. uh, if you don't have the data, don't show up. Um, yeah. And if you got the data, you come and you say, look, guys, you know, the, the, the worst thing you can do is have a surprising result and go, mm, that sounds strange. So let's not talk about it. Let's do something else. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. What you have to do when you find these data that surprise yourself and surprise other people is say, well, look, this is these are the data. And let's talk about what you think there might be issues or I might, you know, let's talk about it. Um, yeah. But let's not pretend it's not there. That's the only way yeah. you get get further along is by wrestling with this stuff. So that's been really yeah. fun. Yeah, nice. And from a public health perspective, I really like how you've sort of suggested that some of the messaging in public health in and around obesity and the importance mm. of diet and exercise, like things need to shift there as well because of the same importance is placed on both diet and exercise. Whereas, of course, your research would suggest that that shouldn't be what we, um, that shouldn't be the case, right? Yeah. And you know, I, so there are sort of two ways to look at this, right? A glass mm. half full, glass half empty kind of thing. The glass half full way of looking at this would say like, well, look, you're, you're still saying that diet and exercise are both important. So the mm. public messaging that we have out there is fine. The other way to look at this is to say, but let's, let's actually ask how these things are being marketed and what the promises being made are. When you look at an at a obesity fact sheet that the CDC or the WHO puts out, and it says that this is the way you're going to lose weight is by exercise and diet. And you can pick, basically the implication is you can pick one. Yeah. And people don't want to change their diet, so they pick exercise or whatever. They get told that exercise is the way to do it, and they beat their heads against the wall of exercise, and nothing happens, and they think, I've failed or I've been lied to. Right? Mm. I think that's completely unhelpful. Mm. And I think it's actually damaging to the public health effort to get that right. Yeah. I think there's also a more sinister or cynical, I think, way to think about this, which is, you know, here we are. Um, 
American football season is about to start here, the NFL. I don't know if it ever makes it over the Pacific to you guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but so what, what's going to happen is they're going to have advertisements, they, they used to anyway in previous seasons, for something called NFL Play 60. And it was this idea you're going to get kids out. Let's get kids out exercising you know, during school days and after school and play 60, 60 minutes a day. That's the idea. NFL Play 60. It's a great idea. Kids should exercise. Absolutely. Guess who would love you to focus on that shiny object rather than diet? The people who are sponsoring it, like Gatorade and Coca-Cola and the rest of them, right? So, you know, the answer is go and exercise all you want, but then drink the Gatorade. Yeah, yeah. And why? Well, because you have to have proper nutrition for all that exercise, don't you know? And so it becomes this really kind of messed up thing where we're not going to fix kids' obesity issues at all this way. This is actually Mm. maybe at best neutral and maybe even harmful um, because, you know, so that's, that's where I get really uncomfortable with the, you know, the sort of, oh, well, we're just still talking about diet and exercise. What's the difference? No, I think the, the differences matter. And I think the way we talk about it matters. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And particularly how you've got, I mean, food industry isn't going anywhere, but it is made so much more worse when Coca-Cola appear to be helping with this mm. energy, you know, get your energy into balance yeah. by exercising message and we can be part of that. Like, oh, oh yeah, 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 that's a whole yeah. other topic, really. Herman, how has your research, just finally, how has your research changed your own behavior, if it has, or mm. your own habits? I think it's made me more aware of my diet. It's made mm. me more aware of, of making time to go exercise, mm. you know? I mean, we're all busy and... As we all kind of get into that middle stage of your life when it's, I've got kids, I've got a job, and it would be very easy, and I should, you know, I just spent the last three days on Zoom for committee meetings that I could not get out of, and that's, you know, so it does happen that you just can't exercise every day. I get yeah. it, yeah. but I make it more of a priority now than I think I used to, and, and it's partly because I know how important it is, mm. looking at the literature, looking at the data, looking at my own data. Yeah. Uh, and then when it comes to food, you know, I, I just, I'm very... I'm convinced by work by people like Kevin Hall, for example, that, yeah. you know, it's, it's not carbs that are bad or fat, whatever. It's, it's not, there's no evil nutrients. We package these foods in weird ultra processed forms that make us, that trick our brains into overeating. Yeah. And so we need to be really wary about how much ultra processed food we let in our homes that we have mm-hmm. on our shelves and our pantries and that, that we eat. And um, so I'm, that's maybe more of aware of that as well, I think. Um, Herman, thank you so much for your time and for your book. It's such a fabulous read and I certainly recommend that people go out and buy it or download it the way that I did. Um, where can people find you? Yeah, well, thank you for that. I do hope they'll check out Burn um, and that's a good way to kind of get cut up to date on, on the work we've been doing. They can find uh, me online at Duke, the, mm-hmm. my lab and what we're up to. I'm on Twitter at Herman Ponser. And I want to say that people are excited about the Hadza and interested to learn more there or how they can even help. Um, we've set up a, a charity to kind of help that community stay vital and strong. And it's called the Hadza Fund, H-A-D-Z-A-F-U-N-D dot org. You can check out um, all things Hadza there. That is awesome. And I will put those links in the show notes. Herman, have a fabulous rest of your day. You as well. Thanks so much. Bye. All 
right team. I hope you enjoyed that. I've got to say, I really enjoyed talking to Herman and his book is so good. He's such a good writer that um, it was a very entertaining and not at all dry. And it's just so good to see how our understanding on this has changed. And it really does explain a lot of why we might not burn the calories we think we do or improve the body composition you think you might just by training for a longer endurance event. Next week on the podcast, because it has been a year of Wikipedia, I thought that I would love to sit down and chat to my mate Bevan McKinnon, who is an elite triathlon coach, and he is the host of Fitter Radio, which I am the co-host of and have been for the last seven years. And I really credit Bev into uh, getting me into this podcast space. We both love to talk and the opportunity that he provided me by suggesting I come on and be his co-host really laid the platform, if you like, for sort of where I am today, which I am forever grateful. Uh, More than that though, he's a great mate. We have an awesome conversation about his own background and experience growing up, how we got into triathlon, how that evolved into coaching, and with the evolution of the podcast, where he is today. Bev is a great talker. We have a great conversation, and I think that you'll enjoy what we have uh, to chat about. Until then though, catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or over on my website mickeywillardin.com where in addition to that recipe access portal you can book a consult, sign up to one of my evergreen programs such as the fat loss plan for men and or women, keto longevity plan or my real food nutrition plan for uh, your general person but also your athlete as well where you get shopping lists meal plans access to me with the real food facebook group and a host of other benefits all right team have a fab week see you later